I was thinking of that song that we just heard. I'm so very rich. And we think of our Lord, who though He was rich, He became poor, that we through His poverty might be rich. Isn't that great? One of the great questions that's asked with increasing frequency in our day is the question, who is Jesus? In my personal library, I have several books that bear some very interesting titles. Jesus Rediscovered by Malcolm Muggeridge. The Search for the Historical Jesus by Dr. Crossan. Jesus the Messiah, The Touch of Jesus, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and on and on it goes. And today we see Jesus maligned, ridiculed, and many false assertions designed to diminish His person and His divinity. And here's one of those. I just happen to have it with me. This is a full-page ad in the New York Times. I don't know whether you can read it. But it says, He was one of history's greatest villains. Is he really one of the greatest heroes? Speaking of Judas. And so here's the Gospel of Judas. This ad was purchased by the National Geographic. In a conference I attended about 10 days ago at Mount Hermon, one of the speakers, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar whose writings have deeply, deeply blessed me, was mentioning that a number of New Testament scholars in their writings demonstrate an actual hatred of the Lord Jesus. Some New Testament scholars. Uh, this morning, I want us to take another look at Jesus. It's a, little, it's a little different look for me. I don't recall ever hearing any sermons on this part of Scripture. And I don't know why I have never spoken on this section of the Word of God. I think I've spoken on just about every book in the Bible, but uh, uh, why this particular section, I, I don't know why I left it out. So this morning, I'd like for us to consider one of the seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Actually, they are not seven single words, but seven sentences, seven statements that tell us so much about our Lord Jesus Christ. The last words before one dies are held to be particularly important. And so it is with the seven last words of our Lord. And may I give you just a very, very brief background to these last words. Three of these statements occur between nine o'clock in the morning and twelve noon. And then from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon, there is a darkness and a silence, a very heavy silence during those three hours. And following the three hours of darkness, we again hear the Savior speak the last four words. You know, when I, I come to speak at a place, I often look for confirmation 
with regard to the subject that I am going to be taking up. And this morning in the earlier meeting, we had the, the first word from the cross. And we also had the sixth word from the cross. The first word of the cross being, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the sixth word from the cross, it is finished. This morning, I'd like to think of the fifth word from the cross. I am thirsty. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 19. John 19, beginning to read at verse 28 through verse 30. Reading at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I am thirsty. Just three words. Only three words. And yet how full of meaning. Jesus here, the fountain, the river of life, the rock out of which water flowed and satisfied a thirsty multitude in the wilderness, satisfies them with water. But Jesus, thirsty? Why should he thirst? How could it be? And what does it mean? You know, I, I just am amazed as I meditate on these three words. I'm dumbfounded, actually. And what are we to understand? We remember well the incident of the story that we call the woman at the well. And what an amazing story about water, which began when a Samaritan woman came to an old well called Jacob's Well to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me the drink. And we remember how Jesus told her that everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus had that water. But here on the cross, the one who could put a well of water inside a person cries out, I'm thirsty. It's a mystery. Especially when we notice following the conversation with Jesus that this woman goes back to town without her water pots that she came to the well to fill so she could have some water. She leaves them there. She leaves without the water that could not satisfy. She leaves apparently satisfied within her soul with the water that Jesus gave her. Later on, still in John's Gospel, we read that Jesus went up to Jerusalem 
to celebrate a feast they called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Ingathering, which lasted about a week. And among other things, the people made for themselves tent-like structures in which they lived during the course of that week. And this was to remind them of their, how their ancestors had a hard life. A hard life as they traveled in the wilderness. And how they knew from experience what it meant to be thirsty and not to have a ready supply of water. So they were reenacting, in, in one sense, what their ancestors experienced. And the Gospel writer goes on to tell us that on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stood up and He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says, from within Him, from within Him shall flow rivers of living water. But here on the cross, the one who invites you and I, who invites people to come to Him, and He who could put a river of water inside a person cries out in agony, I am thirsty. What does it mean? You know, water is a powerful metaphor, or to use another word, it's a powerful picture, both in a physical and a spiritual sense. And I'd like to remind you of Two incidents in Israel's history that involved water. Moses led Israel after crossing the Red Sea, and they traveled into the wilderness for about three days. They came to a small body of water near a town called Merah, and they gathered around the water's edge and found they could not drink the water because it was bitter, it was brackish. And this bitterness matched the name of the town. Mara means bitter. So what do the people do? When you don't have water to drink or the water is poor, they grumble. They grumble against Moses. What shall we drink? They were thirsty and the waters of Mara couldn't satisfy. That's like so many other things in our world. The waters just don't satisfy. The Lord showed Moses a tree which was thrown into the water and lo and behold, the water became sweet. And I'm sure most of you can see that the tree here speaks of the cross which makes what is naturally bitter sweet to us. Many of us have experienced the bitterness that comes from disobedience to God. Bitterness from, that comes from the sins that we have committed. Bitterness that comes from a, as a consequence from a life that has been lived without God. And yet, that bitterness is overcome by the one who hangs there on the cross and cries, I'm thirsty. Though he himself is given sour wine to drink. One last example from the history of Israel. Here they are still in the wilderness. And the people are thirsty. And what do they do? They grumble. They grumble against Moses. And Moses at the Lord's instruction is told to strike the rock. 
And the Bible says, you shall strike the water and water shall come out of it that the people may drink. And the New Testament gives us a little insight on this. It tells us that the rock was Christ. Exactly. The rock was Christ, full of life-giving water. So much water flowed from that rock that an entire multitude of two to three million people drank from that water and their animals and that rock, I understand, is still flowing water today. As a matter of fact, I drank water from that area about 15 years ago or more. Jesus, the great provider of water, is so thirsty there in the cross that in the words of Psalm 22 says, my tongue sticks to the sides of my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. There is no moisture in the dust. And no wonder he calls out, I am thirsty. What was it that caused the terrible thirst of our Lord? Psalm 22 pictures for us a description of the exhaustion of the cross. Having hung there for at least six hours, his body suspended by nails in his hands and his feet, his bones pulled out of joint, his body having been terribly beaten, there's an awful sense of weariness and fatigue. His heart, the psalmist says, feels like wax melted within him. And what contributed also to the exhaustion of the cross are those who gaze on our Lord. And Psalm 22 describes them as bulls, bulls of Bashan, powerful, unopposable, irresistible. And then the psalmist changed the figure of speech and says they're like lions and dogs, fierce, ravening, threatening. He is surrounded by his enemies. No words of cheer. Only the debilitating, angry faces of a lynch mob. And then we have those three hours of darkness. The feeling of aloneness. Of abandonment. The one who knew no sin is made sin for us. And he's gripped by a terrible thirst. And so he cries from the cross those three words. I am thirsty. Jesus, you will recall, rebukes Peter for drawing the sword to resist those that came to arrest him. And Jesus says, the cup the Father gave me, am I not to drink it? Jesus thirsts to drink the cup to its final dregs. And incidentally, the cry, I am thirsty, is spoken in the context of the full awareness of Jesus. That Jesus knew all things had already been accomplished. And what did Jesus know 
as he hung on the cross? What did he know had been accomplished? And the literal sense of verse 28 in our text gives us to, gives us, I believe, what Jesus was clearly aware of. Jesus says, after this, aware that all was now finished in order to bring the Scripture to its complete fulfillment, Jesus said, I am thirsty. In the Old Testament, there are several hundred prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. And I want to have you listen to one verse in Acts chapter 3 and verse 18. You don't need to turn to it. I want you to listen carefully to this verse. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ was suffer, He has thus fulfilled all of the words of the prophets. And I'd like to remind you this morning, in rapid sequence, some 15 prophecies out of several hundred that were fulfilled in Jesus that relates to his suffering. He was betrayed by a friend. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. These are all prophecies. He was forsaken by his enemies. He was accused by false witnesses. He was dumb before his accusers. He was smitten and spit upon. He was mocked. His hands and feet were pierced. He was crucified with thieves. He interceded for his persecutors. He was rejected by his own people. He was hated without a cause. His garments were parted. We have his cry of abandonment. And then we're told that he was going to suffer thirst. When you put all of these prophecies together, no wonder he cried out those words, I am thirsty. And I submit that the work of the cross and the fulfillment of the prophecies was hard work. Very hard work. That it was exhausting. That it was debilitating. And yet we have the Scripture that tells us that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross despising the shame. Yes, He endured the cross. He endured. He didn't give up. He didn't shrink back. He endured. And so we ask the question, what is the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ? In order to understand its meaning, we must seek to trace throughout the Scriptures the explicit statements about Jesus. Sometimes these statements are made from unlikely and strange sources like Caiaphas in the council meeting when he said, one must die for the nation. Little did Caiaphas know the profound experience of what he was saying. 
And there are a number of major themes that come together to help us understand what happened on the hill outside the city walls. We need to understand what happened at Calvary, especially today in the climate of the denial of the words of Jesus himself. John chapter 12, verse 27, listen. It says, Now my soul has become troubled And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose came I to this hour. And Jesus in this verse calls attention to purpose. What is the purpose of this hour? What is the meaning? And I'd like to give you just six statements of purpose from the Scriptures. Statement number one, it means, the purpose means that the work of redemption is going to be accomplished completely. It means that the debt that I could not pay, never pay, is fully and completely covered, paid in full. Statement number two. It means that in the cross, Jesus fully satisfies the righteous demands of a holy God. Justice is not set aside. Justice is fulfilled. Remember what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished. The work which you gave me to do. The Father gave Jesus a task, in other words. And Jesus fulfilled, accomplished that task. So he could say, finished. The task is done. That's statement number two. Number three. It means that in the cross, Jesus has fulfilled all the pictures of himself in the Old Testament from the sacrificial system from the tabernacle to the types represented by many Old Testament individuals. It means that the Old Testament is not just a bunch of nice stories, but is full of images that help us to understand more fully, more fully the plan and purpose of God. Statement number four. It means that in the cross, Jesus takes the place of helpless Sinners like me and you. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for us. And the basic point here is that we do not have within ourselves the resources to resolve the deepest of all human crises. And I submit that the deepest human crisis is our sin. Our sinfulness which leads to death. All the Old Testament sacrifices all come to their completion. Not symbolically only, but actually in the person who hangs on that central cross just outside the city. 
Statement number five. It means that in the cross, Jesus restores what man had lost through sin. What did man lose? Man had lost relationship with God. He had lost his commission as ruler over the earth. He had lost his innocence. And man now had the sense of death hanging over him. And lastly, statement number six. It means that in the cross, millions of people were going to find forgiveness and peace and joy and hope and a new forever family, a relationship with God, a release from the bondage of the fear of death, etc., etc., etc. And some of you, I'm sure, have already thought of additional accomplishments of meaning of purpose. And yes, I too, I just want to add one more, even though I said six. It's okay to give seven, isn't it? And I put this item by itself. Rather than lumping it with what I call statements of person, because this point is so great, so magnificent, so wonderful. And I suppose we could sum up our answer to our question by considering simply these words of Scripture. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. And there is no greater example of love than that. You want to understand a little bit about love? First John three sixteen. First John 3.16. We know love by this. We know love by this. That He laid down His life for us. That's how we know. How do you know God loves you? He laid down His life. One last scripture. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates. He demonstrates. He wants us to understand and so He demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And these words from Scripture tell us that the reason for the death of Jesus in behalf of the world is that He loved us. How do I know that God, that Jesus loves me? The cross. The cross. That's how I know He loves me. Throughout the Gospel of John, the Gospel of love, we are given portraits of the love of Christ for people. It's the love that finds broken people like the Samaritan woman. It's that kind of love that finds a man at the pool of Bethesda who for many, many years is debilitated, unable to help himself, depressed. It's the love that heals the man born blind. It's the love that cared so deeply about the disciples and their feelings that he crosses the lake in a storm to come to the aid and comfort of his disciples. 
It's that kind of love that washes dirty feet. This love of Jesus Christ is the reason for the cross. And I submit the reason for the cry, I am thirsty. The love of the Lord Jesus allowed the disciples and us to fail. And those arms that are extended wide are arms of welcome. They're arms that are ready to embrace. You know, I like it here because you embrace me. And I love to embrace you. And, but His arms are extended wide to embrace all of us. And they're big enough and long enough to encompass all of us. There's one more profoundly important thing that happens on that Friday that we call good. Jesus is disarming the power of sin. He's disarming the power of death and the devil by taking into his own hand the cup of death. And there's a battle being waged at Calvary that is of far greater significance than we can fathom. And John in his Gospel, in the final hours of Jesus' life, seems to shift away from the accusers of Jesus. Yes, there were the accusers. There were the taunts. There were the mockeries. But John gives us relatively little of this compared to the other Gospels. And why do we ask? Why does he give us little? I submit that John is focusing on the battle that Jesus is engaged in with the battle against evil. I want you to listen to these words of Jesus. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. There's a battle going on. A horrible battle going on. And he is casting out the ruler of this world. In closing, when you and I hear those three words, I am thirsty, I'd like to suggest that you remember that great work on the cross. Exhausting work. Remember that it also is a cry that tells us that the work is done, completed, and that the next cry is going to be, it is finished. This means that you and I can come to the one who completed the work, the one who loved us so fully, this one who wins the victory over the evil one, this one who now invites us to believe, to receive him and come into his family. When we sit down Sunday by Sunday, as we did this morning, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we seek to remember, to remember our Lord in His death. And in the remembering, you and I are blessed because we can fully realize that God loves us. 
in remembering him, we are blessed. Because I can recall that he loves me. I'd like to read one last scripture. You might want to turn to this one. This is really something. Psalm 42. And I'd like to leave you with a challenge from Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. Listen, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Have you ever been thirsty? Are you thirsty for God? For the living God. You know, the, the picture that the psalmist uses of the deer, and, and I can just imagine, uh, we got a lot of deer in our backyard. Uh, I love them, but I wish they'd leave my roses alone. But there they are, these beautiful deer. And the picture I get in this psalm here is of this deer that's just been racing for quite a while and out of breath. You know, panting for air and for a, a drink of cold water. And you have this deer coming to this brook and just drinking it in and is refreshed. The psalmist pants for God. He says his soul thirsts for God. Have you ever panted for God? I sometimes think of the uh, of Pascal as he describes his encounter with the Lord Jesus. He said something like this. I may be a little bit off on some of the words, but uh, three o'clock in the morning, fire, fire, glory, glory. And I think of Pascal as being that person who panted after God. And I trust that our meditation this morning on the fifth word from the cross will install in all of us a thirst for Him. One of the great verses in the Bible is in the, the book of Revelation. You don't need to turn to it. But there... We have another picture of water. And it speaks there of the river of the water of life, clear as crystal. No pollution there. Coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We're going to drink of the water of life there. What a great day. What a great day. May the Lord help us and bless us 
as he already has beyond measure. Let's give him thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who hung there on the cross and said those words, I am thirsty. He thirsted that we might not thirst. He's the one that has the water of life. He's the one that can tell us if you drink of the water that I will give you, that you shall never thirst again. And Lord, we're so grateful for that. Bless this uh, dear company of believers, of your children, of those who have drunk and yet who still thirst for you. Because only you can satisfy in a world of dissatisfaction, in a world of the counterfeit, in the world that has water like was at the water at the well, Jacob's well. Father, dismiss us with your blessing. For we pray in your name. Amen.